You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. Hey, welcome to Real Investor Radio. This is Craig Fuhr, and I'm here with Jack Bevere. And today, we're going to do episode six. And unlike episodes up until now, we're going to kind of go around the horn today. Jack consumes a lot of information from really great resources that I don't think a lot of investors privy themselves to. And I like to try to consume as much for these episodes as possible prior to. So one of the things that we like to do every now and again is just, man, let's just talk about what we're seeing in the news. Some of these uh, great news stories that we're seeing from better sources, honestly, and spend a little time on each and talk about how they impact everyone who's listening. So one of the articles that you sent a couple of days ago was this one from Housing Wire. By the way, if you're not members of Housing Wire, you might want to check it out. It's great, great content. And this one was entitled Small and Mid-Size Home Builders Didn't Quite Meet Their Expectations in May. The article points out that for the first time in a few years, sentiment amongst the national home builders, their confidence is actually in positive territory for the first time in over a year. Housing starts are actually, says they're up 21% from April and up 5% from May of 22 to about 1.63 million units. But that said, a lot of the building right now, Jack, is going on in the Sunbelt states. And what we're seeing is not much building going on at all on the Eastern, in in sort of the Northeast and Eastern seaboard. So what do we want to get across in terms of this article here? Yeah, sure. So I think that it's I think it's important to keep an eye out on what the home builders are doing. The public's obviously, though they are more active in, you know, the most active in, in certain geographies. From a flipper's point of view and real estate investors' point of view, I, I try to follow the small and medium home builders whenever I can. And so this particular housing wire article, you know, made specific mention of them. And I think that, you know, frankly, there's a lot of similarities between what affects the small and medium sized home building market and what affects, you know, the Main Street real estate investor market. Sure. So, yeah, one of the things that the article pointed out was that, as you mentioned, the sentiment is up. And I think that that generally reflects, you know, overall positive optimism about American real estate. And frankly, you know, the fact that we've got such a supply constrained environment right now because of the low interest rates and all the refinancing has meant that there's not a lot of inventory hitting the market these days. And, Home builders are a source of inventory, right? Like they they've got lots in production. They are buying house, you know, buying land years ahead of when they're actually planning to put projects into place. And so, home builders are uniquely positioned to be able to bring unique new supply to the market. And so, certainly, they don't want to like flood the market with a bunch of new building, though, if that drives prices down. So they're kind of tapering it out right now. Yeah. Something that the article alluded to that I that kind of rang true for me as well was that they saw a little bit of a downturn recently in the uh, time frame. I think about five percent. Yeah, and that was. Uh, I think that you know what I think best explains that is really just mortgage rates. I think it's interesting. You know, mortgage rates ticked back up in May to that seven percent range, which is what we where we were at in the third and fourth quarter of last year, which is when home builder sentiment wasn't as as strong, and. I think that we're really seeing that that rings true that I, th- I think that the consumer right now, the home buyer, is watching interest rates today more closely than than I've ever noticed. Like yeah. when when mortgage rates change by 25, 50 basis points, the phone, you notice it. You know, like there is a material difference in terms of demand for mortgages. 
And so I think that that is affecting, you know, we're, I think the home builders and flippers right now are, are riding that kind of mortgage curve right now. So, yeah. which means that if we see a downtick in mortgage rates, there's a lot of pent up demand. There's just this battle going on right now that we were talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. between affordability and household formation, right? Like it's, it's not very affordable to buy a house right now, but we still want to have a baby. And so we need to go buy a house. And at a certain point, you just buy the damn house because we're about to have a baby and we can't be in our parents' basement anymore. And so they're watching, you know, the home buyer is watching for any downtick in mortgage rates to be able to jump into the market and, and buy a house. You know, one of the things we talked about in the last episode was this sort of seller capitulation on pricing, right? And builders are sellers. And one of the things that this article points out, which I find interesting is I'll read it here. It says, builder pricing activity remained mixed. One third of the builders reported raising either most or all some of their base prices up from 30% in April, and 19% of the builders lowered most or all of their base prices in April. Do you find that at all surprising? Yeah. In this market where we've got high interest rates that these builders are actually still raising their prices? I think that's a regional thing. I think that sure. that's much more, I think that that's, I think that if you, if they broke down that data, you'd probably see that that's very geographically focused based off of, you know, of, frankly, just based off of affordability. So the, the more affordable segments of the market, you can still increase prices because that affordability, you know, component of household formation is, is less of a factor. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the higher end markets, you know, I bet, I bet a lot of that, I bet a lot of those decreases are California, Arizona, and, you know, higher in Texas, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Can you speak at all? Do we want to speak at all to sort of this lack of builder interest in a lot of formation in sort of the Northeastern states, you know, Eastern seaboard states? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Which is exactly where we are right now, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the Sun Belt, you know, has been where a lot of not only in migration from the Northeast the north has and the you know the west coast has been happening for tax reasons for weather reasons and at the same time they're also giving out permits you know the, the municipalities are issuing permits in those areas in those states generally at a much much higher rate than the than the north you know the bluer states and so the the states are all too happy right to issue to issue permits to like accept all of this new money coming into their their tax system at really high levels i will tell you just as an anecdotal point here, there's a house that was being built right next to mine. And the builder, who was just a small infill builder, a guy who's well-known in Howard County, been around a long time. His foreman and I were having a conversation one day and he said, I don't think we're going to be in the business much longer. Why is that? He goes, the house that you're looking at right here, the one that's being built next to mine, $60,000 in permits. Yeah. Yeah. And so one wonders why these guys would move to you know, their business and operations and really scale in states that are a much better climate for building. And that's what we've seen a lot in those Southern states, obviously. Yeah. We started doing some infill new construction when COVID hit or just before COVID and then throughout COVID. But man, to get a permit was just a ridiculously long process. We're in the blue state of Maryland. And even though there's, you know, community development, they want the new construction, just the just the way that the bureaucracy is set up, it's extraordinarily difficult to, you know, we were waiting for 18 months for one permit on a completely entitled, as of right, you know, public water and sewer lot is just kind of mind-blowing. When you were looking at lots, were these lots raw? Were they ready to go? 
as of right, like they're on public water and sewer. So like, you know, it's like an old house got torn down or it was a, a lot that was like bought by the neighbor. And then eventually they just didn't want the neighbor yard anymore. So they sold it off and it was, you know, it, and it was as of right, you know, you, you weren't doing any subdivisions it. or anything. No, we have done some of that stuff though. And that's what we, you know, had to do to find margin in mm-hmm. 2019, 2020. We started doing more and more of that. So we have a number of those that are in the pipeline. They've just taken a really long time to get through the permitting process. Do you feel like it's still a viable business? Yeah, I've come to the conclusion that in blue states, in like more difficult permitting states, it's a nice piece of the business, but in and of itself, it is so up here, it is so unpredictable as to when you're going to get your permit. It's frankly, practically impossible to build a, a business model around infill lots. Sure. We fund some guys in our lending business down in down in North Carolina, in Georgia, in Florida, in Texas. And that's all they do. Like everyone I was just talking about, they South Carolina, all they do is infill lot and they go can, find a few lots. Yeah. And they get to go. They find a bunch of lots. Sure, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> like let's say you go into a neighborhood and there's there's maybe three empty lots right there. We're yeah. Not, we're not talking about going into a place and doing 50 houses at once. No, no, yeah. Just there. infill, like, yeah, spot lot, spot lot deals. And but they're able to find enough of them and they're able to get permits on a predictable enough basis that they can actually put a business model behind it. And that's all they do. You know, they do 200 deals a year of spot lots yep. because there's that predictability of the permit system. And you just don't have that at the Northeast. One of my best friends is a builder in a DC suburb, Washington DC suburb called Prince George's County. Prince George's County has a bill that looks like it's going to stall, but was the news for the past six months about putting a uh, a new construction townhouse moratorium in place for two years. So like, just say, yeah, we don't want any more townhouses. We think that there's too much sprawl going on. What we really want is kind of core mixed use, you know, in transit areas. You know, we don't want any more cars basically, right? Like we want to build next to the transit hubs. So we either want like, we either want like downtown Bethesda, you know, like we want that this like, you know, this vibrant mixed use community, or we want, you know, half an acre mansions and nothing in between. Mm-hmm. And that you know, leaves out the entire affordable segment of the market. But you know, you've got an area of you know, the DC suburbs, which is one of, the, it's one of the more affordable areas in terms of if you want to be in the DC suburbs yeah, and actually commute to a, to a federal job. Mm-hmm. And, but the, you know, the city council, well, it was particular city council people, their attitude was, that, hey, just, we just you know, complete nimbyism. You know? And so when you have that sentiment, right? Like that bill didn't end up passing but it had a lot of momentum. And when you have that kind of sentiment in the political environment, what are businesses going to do? Set up shop? Like, dude, you, you just told me you were going to shut, like, shut down for two years a whole segment of the, you know, from the three hundred dollars to $700,000 price point, because that's townhouses in PG County. Yeah. Like, we're not going to build any of that stuff. So like the new entry price point for PG County is going to be seven fifty. dollars the, the mind-blowing aspect of that is, if you look at one of the hottest growing some of these articles have pointed out that while some of these builders for single family residential are, are missing some of their marks, the hottest asset class right now for construction is multifamily. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the master plan of, say, Howard County, Maryland, where I live, it is all about density. It's all about changing density. And so one county south, which is the one you were just speaking of, Prince George's County, it is mind-blowing to me to think that they're trying to take out density, right? That like, we don't want any townhouses which are dense. We'd much rather have either 
what you were saying, which is like a mixed use, which is probably retail on the bottom, maybe some office and then, um, multifamily, and then up. multifamily upstairs. But that's generally always located like on the main thoroughfares, right. the route ones, things like that. You're not going to see that out in Western Howard County or out, you know, where the, where the uh, McMansions are. And so I would caution, I wouldn't caution, I would, I would recommend that anybody who's listening right now, just take a look at the master plan in and around the cities of where you live. And you'll find that almost every single one of them is addressing primarily a massive affordability gap and a density issue. And so I don't know if you want to speak to that at all as sort of the opportunity there. Yes. But- yeah. There's an interesting, like, so for example, if that, if that bill had passed, right, and this townhouse moratorium gets put in place, there's essentially, we've just eliminated new supply of affordable housing right. in the county, right? Probably actually a phenomenal opportunity for flippers, right? Because you don't have this new construction, new supply competition anywhere near you. And so your ability to beat the streets and find deals, you know, you're probably going to see those $400,000 houses go up in value because they don't have any competition until you get to 800. Right. And so the flips, right? And then, and then, you get a, then you get that flip premium or that flip premium expands even, right? Because it's, you can have this well-maintained house, but if you want something pretty, you don't have new construction over your head as a competitive alternative. You know, the flip house ends up getting even more of a premium. Conversely, if you're in a market like the Sun, if you're in markets like the Sun Belt, where they are handing out a lot of new construction permits, that's something you have to look. Yeah, that is something that you have to keep an eye out for, right? Because you do have new construction, which tends to sell at even the premium to some flips. Sure. And if there's a bunch of new supply of new construction coming into the market, coming into your submarket, that may elongate your days on market, may mean that you should step your game up a little bit on the renovation side to really try to distinguish your product. Because yeah. if you put out just a nice, clean, you know, builder grade rehab, you've got this new construction that's going to, you know, that, that's going to be competing with you and you're going to, you might elongate your days on market there. I have a very good friend who's in Knoxville, Tennessee, came from Baraboo, Wisconsin, where he was doing a lot of infill. He could walk into, he could buy a lot that was basically ready to go. No, no, uh, what's the word? No development on the lot, needed, right? Nothing on the dirt. So the dirt was ready to go. He could walk into his permitting office, show him the permits and literally get the permit that day, walk out the next day and have dumpsters on the lot and be ready, you know, excavating. Why did he move to Knoxville, Tennessee? Same exact thing. Mm. And so he's in these great neighborhoods, starter homes that are very nice. You know, you and I would live there, be happy to live there. Half acre lots. He's selling in that sort of four to $600,000 range. And he's walking into the permit office getting the permit that day and building the next. Yeah. Yeah. So it's unheard of in, in most areas of the Northeast to be able to do something like that or even out West. Right. And so yeah. keep an eye on what your builders are doing and keep an eye on, on sort of their confidence in the market. All right. So second topic, solar panels, who would have ever thought we'd be going into this, but there are real tax advantages, especially for landlords here. So go ahead and speak to that. Yeah. So this is a rabbit hole. I found myself crawling down a couple of weeks ago, did a lot of work on it, you know, for our own portfolio. We're always looking for interesting tax opportunities to, you know, to save in taxes, you know, short term or long term. And so what I came across is that the someone mentioned to me that, you know, that the tax solar panels had become a lot more affordable because of the tax credits now made available by the Inflation Reduction Act. And so part of the Inflation Reduction Act where I, we where I, we print money is that 
the one of the new credits in there is a makes it a lot easier to afford solar panels on your house. And everyone always thinks about that from the homeowner's perspective, right? Almost never, rarely if ever from the landlord's perspective. Yeah, sort of from the investor's perspective. Right? Yeah. yeah. And the reason of that is because the math was always just not very interesting, right? Like you could get, you know, there were state tax credits or some federal tax credit, but when you looked at what the energy savings that you were going to get, the return, you know, and you just translated it to dollars, you know, the return on the investment that you had to have was just not that interesting. And I think that the math has changed on that materially with the Inflation Reduction Act. And I haven't heard a whole lot about it in the news. I think that we're going to hear more about it because I think the math is pretty compelling. If anyone can beat this up and you know, exp- you know, explain to me why I'm wasting my time down this rabbit hole, I would, I would appreciate that. You would save me a bunch of time. But uh, so far, what I've been able to find is that you can, if you install a solar panel on your house, and I'm going to talk about from the landlord's perspective here. Sure. So this house is a business, right? So you install a solar panel on your house. For doing so, 30% of the cost of the installation of that system, you can get in a federal tax credit, not a deduction, but an actual credit. I believe that's called the ITC, the investment, the investment tax. tax credit. Exactly. Yeah. So immediately 30% of the system, you can get back on your taxes in you know, the next year. There's an additional 10% adder if more than 50% of the solar system components are sourced in the US and domestically in the United States. Not always easy to find. No, not always easy to find. Since many of them are produced in China. Yep. Don't let me get started. But uh, you know, this is uh, you know, to, to support domestic production of solar, you know, I guess that's why they put the 10 in there. And it seems in my conversation with a lot of solar providers, you know, vendors, they're all putting a set of SKUs on the bench. You know, in one that I was most recently talking to, you know, those domestic components probably cost an extra 5%, but you're going to get a 10% credit. So it's worth doing. And so, you know, you just ask for the American stuff. So you get an extra 10% there. So now 40% of the system is recoverable in a federal tax credit. And then if you're in a low income area and you have to look at, if you can go to, we'll put the link in the show notes. There's a link to recent that the energy department put out there to that, that kind of puts this into fairly consumable English. But if you're in a low-income area, you can get an additional 20% tax credit. So now we're going to be up to 60% of the cost of the system in year one federal tax credits. Now, that 20%, though, is not as of right. Like You have to, you have to apply for that low-income designation. And the regs on that application process are actually not even yet published. They're going to be published in the third quarter. Okay. That's the recent Department of Energy guidance. So that's something that I'm currently waiting for is seeing what those regs are going to look like. But on paper, it looks like if you're is located in a low-income census tract or you're renting to folks who make 80% or less of area median income, which is anyone who's working with a housing choice voucher program, for example, mm-hmm. that you may be, able to, may be able to get that 20% credit as well. So now we're up to 60%. Just for the installation. The cost of the insulation. Labor and materials. Got it. Yeah, the whole, the whole system cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So add to that, there are often state tax credits. There's state incentives. Maryland has two. You know, I just happen to be speaking about Maryland, but you can find your state incentives very easily. I post a link for that as well. I've got a link that has all the state's incentives. Maryland's got $1,000. So that's you know, roughly you know, between 5 and 10% of the system cost as a Maryland tax credit. And then there's also Maryland's got an additional incentive for the actual energy production that you make. So now we're up to in like the 70-ish percent range. 
And then additionally, the unit itself is eligible to be depreciated. And because it is now, you know, it's an improvement that you've made to the property. So you can depreciate that improvement. And we are still in, for those who are not familiar, from the Trump tax code, they instituted bonus depreciation and acceleration of bonus depreciation. So your five and your 15 year property. This is a bit misunderstood. Most people just depreciate their rental portfolio across like a 27 year type. Yeah. But, and that's the default, right? If you just hand your stuff to your accountant, they'll just do a straight line adjustment and because it's easy, right? But it's actually the case that within that house, not everything is that full amortization period. There is a certain level of your components that are able to be depreciated over five years, another set of components that are able to be depreciated over, over 15 years. And so the five and 15 year property, which in our houses ends up being about 20% of the improvements can be depreciated, was able to be depreciated 100% in year one. That's called 100% bonus depreciation. So if you, right, ask, let's, if you let's, ask your accountant about, hey, I understand there's this thing called 100% bonus depreciation, they'll be able to explain that. And if he doesn't, apply then you that. need a new, new but yeah, you should. quickly, let's take a, a standard Baltimore row house. And let's say you just said that all of the improvements that we put into that in-house all of the improvements of the real estate. So including the bricks and roof and not just the work that you do, but the entire, you know, with the cost to construct the house. So you just say, Hey, I paid $150,000 for this house. Got it. Well, I paid, let me use a different number. I paid $200,000 for this house. Depending on the square footage, you may say that $160,000 of that is improvements and $40,000 of that is land. I gotcha. So of that $160,000, in our case, Roughly 32, 20% of that $160,000 of improvements was five and 15 year property and therefore eligible to be depreciated in year one. So you get this, you know, when you add a unit to your rental portfolio and using the numbers I just talked about, you get a year one $32,000 deduction. You know, that, that concept is a reason why multifamily syndicators who are sometimes allocating depreciation to their side of the ledger or just generally folks who are adding a lot of rental real estate one of the main drivers since the Trump tax code has been to get and allocate this bonus depreciation allocation sure. because whatever else you were doing that was taxable probably got wiped out yeah. by this bonus depreciation. So there's been a lot of not paying taxes. I was going to say, I know a lot of guys that have added a lot of properties to yeah. their portfolios and have paid zero in federal tax. Yeah. And one of the other you know features of the Trump tax code was that you can, even if that drives your taxable income negative, that's fine because now you've created a net operating loss, tax term, net operating loss, where your actual taxable income is negative, and you could carry forward into the future that net operating loss for an unlimited amount of time. So it didn't matter how many, there was no losing it, right? Like generate as many losses as you want through depreciation. You could carry forward, carry it forward to offset your future income forever. And so that was a big driver behind a lot of multifamily syndications and behind a lot of commercial real estate purchases. And for the folks who were adding a lot of rental units, it was an opportunity to offset your taxable income with this bonus depreciation. So it's been 100% bonus, but that law is winding down. Oh, it is? There's a sunset to that bonus depreciation idea. And so it's winding down from 100 over the next five years. 100 was last year. And now it's going to be, this year, it's, it's 80%. So of that five and 15 year property, you can offset you can bonus depreciate 80% of it. Next year, it'll be 60, then 40, then 20. And then you're back to having to d- just do five 
15 and 27 and a half year property. I see. So all that to say, the $15,000 solar system that you put on your house, you can bonus depreciate 80% of that in year one. So that would be a, in this case, $12,000 deduction in year one. If your marginal tax rate's 40%, that's $4,800 of taxes that you're not paying this year for 2023 as a percentage of the total cost of the system makes up most of the rest of the gap that we were just talking about. So between the 30% investment tax credit, 10% domestic bonus, the 20% low income bonus, if you get awarded that, your state incentives, and then bonus depreciation, solar panels are damn near free after tax right now. So I'm looking at the report from energy.gov, which again, we'll post in the notes, show notes, which can be found at realinvestorradio.com forward slash notes for the episode. And so they mentioned two specific tax credits here. The, the ITC, which is the one you just spoke of, investment tax credit, and then the PTC, which is the production tax credit, which says here, the production tax credit is a per kilowatt hour tax credit for electricity generated by solar and other qualifying technologies for the first 10 years of a system's operation. It reduces the federal income tax liability and is adjusted annually for inflation. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So you have to choose one or the other. Oh. So the investment tax credit is the upfront. Alternatively, if you say, hey, you know what? I'm building a solar field in Phoenix and this thing is going to crush. It might make more sense on a net present value basis to do the production tax credit. I should have read further here. It says generally project owners cannot claim both the ITC and the PTC for the same property, although they could claim different credits for co-located systems like solar and storage, depending upon the further guidance that you mentioned that's coming in the third quarter. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when they were writing these credits, you know, people were thinking about solar farms, right? Like it was like, Hey, I got a field and I'm going to put a solar farm in it. And, you know, let's incentivize that, you know, putting money into the grid. There's this concept of a solar community where you produce solar electricity, and then you can actually sell that electricity to folks who opt into your program to Mm -hmm. be part of your solar community program. But it was never really conceived of it's never, it was never really conceived that for, for business purposes that a landlord might put a unit on his house. One of the reasons that I say that is that, and a hurdle here is that you can't, you know, say, say you put this solar panel in your house. You can't, well, at least in Maryland, this is a state by state thing. Sure. So you have to look at your state regs on this. And there's probably some states that do allow it, but at least in Maryland, can't start sending my tenants a bill for the electricity that's been generated. Which is, which, you know, damn, right? Like, because right. that would be amazing, right? Because, yeah, yeah. you know, somebody, now you're the electric company. Yeah, now we're, yeah, exactly. We're the electric company. The solar panel is almost free and I'm the electric company. Like, that would be pretty awesome. We would put solar panels on every single one of our houses. Tomorrow. House. Yeah. So, in our case, in the, in the case that I'm studying here, which is a rental portfolio that where we can't do that direct billing, I'm going to be using it, I think, as, you know, assuming I get that 20% allocation of the low income side, I'm going to be using it as a incentive for, for my tenants to stay in the unit longer and to make the property more leasable. Why? Um, because it's, it's super helpful from affordability point of view, right? Because it reduces their overall monthly thing. Yeah. So you do, know, you, do you know by how, about how much? Yeah. Call, so call it like a six kilowatt hour system, which is like a you know, normal sized row house roof. That'll um, run a house. 
Yeah, it's called that like $80 a month of electric savings in that range. That's very, very ballpark. Sure, sure. No one yell at me in the notes for that. Yeah, but, yeah. but, you know, it's, it's a, you know, but for someone who's, you know, who's, sort of low income, <laughs> maybe on a voucher. I mean, that's groceries for you know, yeah. a week and a half, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's not an insignificant thing. Yeah. So, you know, obviously big disclaimers on this is not tax advice. We're not tax consultants. We're not legal consultants. Consult, consult your blah, 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 blah. Do we need to say that every episode or can we just like, that's a flat out. Yeah. We're not tax consultants. Yeah. Especially um, me. But, but no one's really talking about it. And I, right now yet, I think there's a yet behind that. I think there could be some really interesting applications of it. Obviously they put it in place because they wanted it to be used. And so. Would you recommend that, that anybody, look, I'm going to go out guy listening to this podcast. I'm excited because I've kind of looked into solar a little bit without these regs being out until the third quarter. I mean, is do we, do we jump into this right now or do we wait? Well, if you're, yeah, I mean, even without the low income, the, the, those regs in the third quarter only apply to the low income aspect of it. So if you're not counting on that additional 20% tax credit or your house just isn't in a low income area, mm-hmm. then it doesn't apply. Everything else is ready to go. Like you can put, and, and it significantly decreases the, you know, certainly you could on the turnover, put a solar panel in, not even on the turnover, just, you know, you could go put a solar panel in and know that you're going to be generating roughly $80 a month of electricity, you should be able to charge a higher amount of rent for that. And that incremental rent is your return on the net dollars here. So there's, you know, obviously there's individual math to do based off of the house and your location and your, whatever your marginal tax rate is. But with the, the point is with the addition of these new incentives, the math has become much more compelling than it was before. I did this analysis probably five, 10 years ago. And at the time I was like, ah, we could do it, but our return is like 5%. And at the time, like the treasury was 5%. And yeah. so I was like, ah, it's just not a very compelling investment case unless you really just wanted to have a green, you know, unless you really wanted to- A strategy to be green. Yeah, strategy to be green or, or you know, or belief, you know, true believer in, on the, that, from that point of view, which obviously is a good thing to do. But just on a purely economics basis, there wasn't a compelling financial case to be made. Whereas I think the financial case is a lot more compelling today. I want to be green, but it would cost me too much money. But now I'm really thinking about being green, I think is what we just heard from Jack there. So that report, by the way, is from energy.gov and it's called Federal Solar Tax Credits for Businesses. Again, we'll put the link in the uh, show notes for you, but uh, that's, uh, it was updated in June of 2023. So it is uh, very current. So check that out. Before we click the mics on for this episode, Jack said, hey man, I think I want to step up on my soapbox I don't know, I have no idea where he's going with this, but flipping activity. You said you want to talk about flipping activity. And so Soapbox is uh, ready and go. <laughs> so, uh, so Adam, so uh, whenever there is an article about flipping, I click on it, period, hard stop. And often it's the case where I'll see, we'll see these articles where it's like top 10 markets in the country to flip houses. Flipping activity is up. Flipping activity is down. and I read these articles and they drive me absolutely bananas because while the data exists to do really interesting analysis on the flipping market, I feel like most of the data providers who do that kind of analysis fall short in that they make this generalization. They make two fundamental errors in the underlying data set, which means that the analysis is meaningless and not actionable and not frankly, not very interesting. What they call a flip is a property that is bought and then resold generally within a 12-month period, but sure. pick your time frame. And that's it. 
And usually they also overlay by an LLC, but that's it. They don't put a, so if you buy a house for a hundred and then you resell it for 120, they call that a flip. Sure. I don't call that a flip. I call that a wholesale. That's called wholesaling. Flipping is when you buy a property and then you do some work to it to add some value and then you resell it. Sure. One of the reasons that flipping, you know, as a, is a somewhat of a negative connotation to it in certain circles is the idea that if it was just, if you're just buying a property for a hundred, sitting on it for a while and then reselling it for a higher amount, you've either scalped the market in some way or you're speculating, but you're not adding value. No value. But flipping is the act of adding value to a property to get it to its full potential. So you're taking something that is depreciated and then bringing it up to a new condition Mm -hmm. or like new condition. And so, but the data analysts aren't drawing that distinction between the concept of wholesaling, between the business model, which is a completely different business model, right? Of wholesaling, which is more like trading houses and flipping. So when we do our, and and so when we do our our analysis of flipping markets, we draw, I I picked an arbitrary number here, a a minimum difference between the purchase price and the resale price of at least $60,000, which I think is even pretty low. But it gets out most of the wholesaling activity, sure. Which is, you know, usually in like the ten to maybe thirty thousand dollar range. So you're saying speaking. you'll take a look at a market house was purchased for a hundred, sold for a buck sixty. You're considering that's the value add at that point. The person obviously bought it, did some renovations, sold it. Probably did something, yeah. And if it's only a sixty thousand dollars spread between purchase and sale after after holding costs, transaction costs on both sides, commissions. Yeah, we're not saying they did well. That's a pretty light flip, right? <laughs> right. Like. The vast majority of flips are you bought a house for a hundred, you put fifty grand into it, you sold it for two twenty five. You know yeah. the, the spread between the purchase price and the sale price, which is the two numbers you see in the public record, are usually over a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Like that's a bread and butter flip, and so it kills me because then they'll because then the article the, the analysts will draw these conclusions that these are the best markets because these are where the biggest margins are. And they'll say, you know, whatever city in Connecticut has an average $140,000 flipping profit. And they use the word profit and that freaking drives me insane because we know that there was, there's work that was done. We spent a lot in rehab in there. It's the HGTV. That's right. right. Flip this house version of profit where Sue and Sam bought the house for a hundred and they put a hundred into it and sold it for 300, which means they made $100,000 profit, Jack. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah, is what got that. everybody into the flipping business in the first place was yeah. the, with those lies over numbers. So it destroys me because then they'll say, hey, here's the top 10 markets. And you just see a list of, of markets that have old houses in them. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, that's $140,000 average because all the houses are built in 1910, like because it's in the Northeast, right? Sure. So it makes the Northeast look like there's like these amazing outsized returns that you can get. When that is often not the case because those people are doing $90,000 rehabs. Whereas if you're in, you know, if, we're, if you're in, you know, working on houses that were built in the 2000s in Florida and Georgia and Texas and, you know, th- that you're doing $30,000 rehabs. And so as a result, the analysis is rendered completely meaningless, right? Like it's, 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 it's useless, meaningless, and just clickbait for people who don't understand. And it's a shame because you could do it just one level of more sophistication. And by doing, drawing the distinction between wholesaling and flipping, and then making some kind of adjusted analysis based off of even just the year built, right? Like they've got the public record data of the year built and the square footage. You could say, 
and, and this would be also very imperfect, right? But if a house is built in 2000s, well, then a flip is, let's just assume that it's $30 a foot of work needed to be done. Sure. And if you have a built that was built in the fi- a house that was built in the 50s, that's $60 a foot of needed, $60 a foot of work needed to be done. If it was built in 1910, that $90 a foot of work needed to be done. And that would be wrong, right? Like it's obviously a, a you know, still a very broad brush, but it would at least give you some adjusting factors to maybe zoom in, zero in on where there are interesting flipping opportunities and where there are not. I think that even in a different approach to analyzing flipping markets would be not based off of any of those numbers that I just talked about because the rehab is unknowable, the situations are unknowable. You know, we don't know if it was well-maintained or really decrepit, you know, a deal that may look like a grand slam could have been actually a loser. So perhaps that's the wrong way to look at the analysis completely. Instead, maybe we should be looking at where are there markets where there are people who are doing between three and 20 flips a year at a high volume, right? Okay. If, there, if, a, if a market's, I would argue that if a market's dominated by, if you look at the flips and who does the flips and those LLCs, it was their first one. And the market is dominated by people who are doing their, by LLCs who are doing their first flip or their second flip. That's probably not a great market because there's a ton of newbies in here, you know, probably bidding stuff up. Buying way too, for, for way too much. Conversely, if you've got a market dominated by entities that are doing very high volumes, you know, hundreds a year, high buyers probably, right? That that's also probably not a very interesting market for a main street real estate investor. But hey, if but if you know, but if the median if the median flipper did eight flips last year and there's, you know, and the middle of that bell curve is, you know, is is thick, right? In yeah, terms yeah. of like the quantity of flips that were being that are that are being done by those folks, that's an interesting place to go. And I just think that, you know, you could you could you know, take this idea down a bunch of different paths. I just think that there, with with as much data as we have, there is really interesting analysis that can be done on that data. Yeah. And I don't think yet that I think that there's like a leveling up in terms of sophistication to identifying really to to using data in really interesting ways that would make a difference, not just you know, not just clickbait, not just meaningless clickbait. Which when is you what and it's I being working, used as now. When you and I were working together back in that 2015, 16 era, we had a list of what we considered to be flips in not only Maryland, but I think it was across the country, if I'm not mistaken. And when we sort of sorted the list by number of flips per year of that LLC or investor, let's say, the overwhelming majority, I think I would say probably 90%, I was kind of shocked to believe it was like one flip a year. One to two flips a year, you remember? Yeah, but by by number of entities, yes. By quantity of flips, I think it's more like fifty or sixty percent. Okay, fifty to sixty percent of those LLCs that were pulled do about one to two flips per year. Yeah, correct. And then, so that's one thing that I I kind of actually I was a little surprised by that actually uh, that there were so many investors out there just doing that one to two flips. More importantly, at this stage, you know, several years later. Who are the real aggregators of that data? Like, where can I go and find that data? Yeah, I answer that one question. But one thought is that you, you see a high number of one and two flippers because that's the learning curve, right? Yeah, like yeah. nothing, no books, no courses, nothing prepares you for a flip like doing a flip. Oh, that's so true. And so like you get your ass handed to you on the first, always, almost always. I did not, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say you're going to tell me about you. <laughs> <laughs> or you peak. <laughs> yeah, I peaked. Uh, 20 years ago, I did my first flip. I've been looking for that flip ever since. 
Yeah. So you, yeah, you either blow up or get addicted on the first one, right? But most people blow up on the first one. If you make it through the second, by the time you're done your third, you've pretty much hit your, like you've, that's, that's the vast majority of the learning curve. It's the entire solution set of problems that you'll run into like at least 98% of that. Yeah. Yeah. You'll, you'll get a random curveball from that point after, but you've seen 98% of the problems in those first three. Yep. And it either puts you out of the business and puts such a bad taste in your mouth. You just say, Hey, it's just not for me. I'm just, you know, I'm going to go back to whatever I was doing elsewhere. Or you say that was fun and you get addicted to it. And then you're in the business. You build a real business around it. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. The first three, by the way, are generally, and you know, probably not speaking to many of the listeners of the show here, but the first three, for those of you who remember, they're like art projects. That's like, a, they're each, they're one-offs. You know, I'm, the first one, you go way too far. The second two, you're like, you learn some stuff, but it's still not a business at that point, right? Yeah. You're lucky to make money. By the 30th, you have standard sets of SKUs for tile and backsplash and flooring. Sure. And maybe you have two or three combinations of them, but it becomes contractors that actually show up. Stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, your your question. So the second question is for the people who really want to get into the data, oh, find yeah. those yeah. spreads. You know, where can they find that data? Yeah, sure. So we license. There's three national aggregators of the data, which is really kind of all the source data, right? It's problem with aggregating this data is that every county and or municipality has different protocols for how they collect the data. They collect yeah. different data. They collect it in different formats, and so. Some of them have APIs, some of them don't. And so Black Knight, CoreLogic, and Atom are the three aggregators of the national data. Black Knight and CoreLogic are direct aggregators to the municipalities. And then Atom gets its data from one of those two because of an FCC rule, which was part of allowing a merger to happen. So I can't remember if it was Black Knight or CoreLogic bought somebody who was the third aggregator. And for that merger to go through, the FCC required that, that the acquirer license that data to Adam so that there's a third in the space, a third provider in the space. And so all the data solutions, now those three entities then license, they collect all the data, they, standard, they aggregate it, they standardize it. And I'm talking about assessor, recorder data, some foreclosure like court records as well. Stuff that we would generally be able to find publicly online yeah. ourselves. However, these sure. guys just put it all into one nice basket for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then they license. So those companies then license it to you know, hundreds, if not thousands of other data companies who then are putting it in whatever particular format that they want to display the, the data. And you know, Zillow doesn't go aggregate it from, the, from the, all the counties. They just license the data set from either Black Knight or CoreLogic. Mm-hmm. So you can go direct to them, to those companies, to Black Knight and CoreLogic. Each of them have some like more direct to consumer. Well, we, you know, anybody listening to this would be what they consider consumer yep. products. CoreLogic's is list source. Black Knight has a couple different ones right now. And if you go to their websites, you can, you can find those. Now, they're not cheap and they generally are presenting those in a very standardized format that doesn't give you a whole lot of flexibility to do unique queries on the data. If you want to actually license the data from them, the national set of assessor and recorder data, it's very expensive. It's a six-figure annual licensing agreement. Mm -hmm. And each of the data companies who you may be buying your current data from downstream are paying those six-figure annual licenses to, to Black Knight, CoreLogic, or Atom. And can you mention a few of who of those companies? Yeah. So PropStream is a very popular one. Property Radar 
is coming out with a competitive project product to uh, PropStream right now. List source is the CoreLogic one. A lot of folks use that. Batch leads, you know, there's dozens, right? Sure. But those are some of the bigger names. And you can even just access some of the free data, you know, just by going on Zillow. But of course, you can't query that in any interesting ways. We actually, we do nas- license the National Assessor and Recorded Data so that we can pull it for our own marketing purposes mm-hmm. in, uh, in our lending company. And so I'll also, you know, query that data ourselves just to, you know, because I'm a nerd and I like researching that stuff. Yes, you are. Are we ready to put the soapbox away? Yep, I'm all good. I'm all good. So anyway, yes, this is a call. This might be a reoccurring segment, by the way. This is a call to data providers out there to step up their game on the analysis that's being done. Don't make it just meaningless, you know, meaningless clickbait for flippers. But, you know, there's some really interesting stuff that can be done. And for all the young data analysts out there or folks who can write a little SQL code, which is all you really need. There's, I think, a lot of really interesting opportunities to kind of step up the data analysis game in single family real estate. Awesome. All right. So the fourth and final topic of today's show is opportunism in private lending. You wanted to speak about this a little bit. Yeah. So I I saw an article that I thought was really interesting announcing a joint venture between Redwood, which is a publicly traded mortgage REIT. Mm -hmm. They do a lot in the kind of the alternative credit space, including in private lending and residential real estate through their subsidiary called Corvest, which does bridge lending and long-term financing. So it announced this article announced a joint venture between Corvest slash Redwood and Oak Tree, which is a humongous asset manager, $175 billion of assets under management, you know, private equity and, and wealth management firm. And so this, the joint venture is being formed, it's said to do you know, up to a billion dollars of lending, so in, including the debt that they're going to raise. So I kind of, you know, with that billion dollars, I kind of presumed that it was going to be you know, $700 million, $750 million of, of debt, and then call it $250 million of equity. Mm-hmm. And it's an 80-20 joint venture. So Oak Tree is putting up 80% of the money. Redwood Corvest is putting up 20% of the money. So they're putting up $50 million. Oak Tree's putting up 200 million. And the goal is to do bridge lending for multifamily and new construction, which is interesting because three, four years ago, that was well, like that was an incredibly liquid, competitive market. Frankly, not that interesting to get into um, from a lending standpoint. From a lending standpoint, because you're competing with with banks for that stuff. You know, five to $25 million loans on you know multifamily new construction or now build to rent is is using that kind of financing a very very mature lending space a very mature lending space yeah and to have a, a joint venture between you know Corvest and an Oak Tree Oak Tree tends to be looking for a little bit more opportunistic returns not sure. the cheapest money out there right you know right. means that they see an opportunity in this segment this this wasn't in the article but it's you know in the five to twenty five million dollar bridge space for these like larger bridge projects. And so I think that that was really interesting because it speaks to something that we've talked about on the show before, which is the banks who would otherwise who have otherwise dominated that space. You know, the the local and regional banks. You know, that that was their bread. It and was butter. their bread and butter, absolutely. But they're all being forced to pull back right now because of you know all the crap that happened sixty days ago. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing a massive, massive contraction, and obviously, we've talked extensively about the. The local banks are are really disappearing at a at a rapid rate, and even the regional banks are pulling back now, contracting in in their terms, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mentioned a buddy of mine who's a builder nearby. He's got a long standing relationship with a big regional bank, 
and like literally a 30 year relationship borrowing from this bank. And the, the banker's calling him up and being like, hey, buddy, you know, we love you. We do. We love you. And everything's yeah. great. Don't get me wrong here. But, you know, on that next deal, like, you know, are you sure you want to move forward right now? Like if it's going to be a lower loan, you know, it's going to be a little bit lower loan to cost and the cost of capital is going to be higher than what you're used to. And to the point where he's like, you know, not that excited about moving forward. So, you know, a clear message even to core customers that they want to pull back in terms of their exposure, in terms of their loans, period, and particularly their exposure to commercial real estate. And so in the wake of that, in the wake of that pullback, you see this opportunism, this opportunism in private lending, you know, a, a joint venture between Oak Tree and Corvest, who are very smart. They get the space, they know exactly what they're doing. And they're coming in to fill that void, right? So they're How gonna does be, that look. They're, they're, yeah. So they're gonna be offering basically the same capital, right? Hold on one second. How does it look? Tell me what the relationship looks like between the 30-year relationship with the banker now in terms of capital. You know, what's that relationship look like, you know, two years ago in terms of what this guy would walk into his bank and get? Two years ago is best buds, you know, you know, best buds, you know, super competitive situation. They love the business and then they've been a great pay the entire time. You know, like it's they were bosom buddies two years ago. And today, you know, they're still showing up, you know, to the crab feast or whatever. But the banker's still, but he's like, but you know, it's not his decision, right? This is coming down from on high. Like he's doing the best he can as the loan officer, but it's not his call. It's he's, the CFO's call. He might be do, willing to do the loan, but it's going to be at a much higher, much higher interest rate. And it's, and they're probably not going to come even close to, you know, it's a funny. lower advance rate. Yeah. 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 Lower advance rate, higher cost of capital. And it's, and it's not his call. You know, it's the CFO's call. Like, it's the loan committee, man. I'm, don't don't shoot the messenger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you know, they're just you know. Tell me what the relationship would look like now with Corvest. You know, what's that going to look like? So yeah, they're going to come in and they're going to offer similar to what the bank was offering before in terms of advance rates. You know, in the 75 LTC, eight maybe maybe L80 LTC, but probably in that 75 percent LTC range is going to be the sweet spot. Yeah, and they're going to be two, three hundred basis points higher than what the bank was before maybe only 150 basis points higher than what the bank is now but it's you know it's going to be a double digit you know it's going to be a, it's going to be a double digit interest rate number and will it be easy will it be that will it be like oh, it'll we, be, we get what you're doing here it'll be the same as the bank i mean yeah maybe a little less maybe a little less maybe a little bit more real estate focused a little less what was your pnl focused but it'll be a um, but it'll be predictable right it'll be a 45 day closing process which is fine. You know, that's, that's what they're looking for. Sure. And, but it's that, I mentioned this a lot, last episode that, but they're, they're going to be, they're basically charging though a liquidity premium, right? Like this isn't about the underlying index. This isn't even about how much risk we think we're taking. This is, I've got money and your banks don't. And as a result, I'm going to come in and I'm going to charge you a little bit more for that 150 basis points, 200 basis points more, but you're going to say yes, because the deal still works. And your other banker is waffling and you don't trust him to show up at the closing table. And you're right about that. You shouldn't. Like he may not. So if you want a predictable, you want a predictable partner to come to the closing table, it's going to cost you an extra 200 basis points. That opportunism in private lending is absolutely happening. This is, a, this is an institutional example of that happening. Sure. That fact pattern, by the way, though, is absolutely also true for Main Street fix and flip investors. Yeah. Yeah. I was just about to say, let's take it down to the, to the single guy level, but you know, that's absolutely happening at that level as well. Yeah. So the, the balance sheet, local, you know, hard money lender, you know, for lack of a better term, 
has been able to increase their interest rates because the institutional national competition has been increasing their interest rates and you get a better service level or can get a better service level or higher loan to cost from that local guy. Sure. And so, you know, the, the opportunities in local private lending, there's opportunism there as well to get a little bit of a liquidity premium because the, the institutional capital is backed off. Certainly, and, and certainly what I said about the commercial real estate side goes for flippers as well. The banks are, the banks are really pulling back from that as, at the same time. And so, you know, it's changing the dynamic. You know, the, the relationships are moving around right now, right? Yeah. Like the guy who, if you got a term sheet six months ago and you haven't gotten one since, you should go get one. Because it will be different and it may surprise, it may, it may be materially different both in terms of rate, but also in terms of advance rate. That will could affect your cash flow. And so you think that you need to bring, you know, 30 grand to the table for this deal and turns out you need to bring 60 and maybe you don't got it or that puts you on tilt. You know, it's so hard to find a deal right now. Getting surprised two weeks before closing when your relationship has, the nature of your relationship has changed is a rude awakening. So I'd, uh, you know, absolutely encourage everybody to, if you think you got a bank, you think you got a banker in your pocket, mm, double back on that. Man, I would love to hear from anyone who is getting that call from their bank, because I've had that call from the bank, two banks, and it is a most unpleasant experience when you're sitting on several deals and you've got a longstanding relationship with a bank where you've paid on time, you've paid them back, everybody's happy, they take you out to lunch, you're getting the perks of the relationship. And then one day you don't have that relationship. And it's literally a phone call. And I'd love to hear from people who are listening in right now who are getting those phone calls because I think more of those phone calls will be coming. Yeah. We've absolutely experienced that ourselves on the uh, the refinancing rental properties side, you know, the new properties that are coming off the pipeline right now, we want to go refinance them. We spent nine months ago, we spent a bunch of time last summer calling banks and figuring out who was still active, who was still lending. At the time, they still had cheap deposits. Sure, right? sure. It's been a bad month, bad nine months. Sure has. And so we compared the term sheets that we got nine months ago to the same set of term sheets today. And it's like before they were like, there was this tight clustering of like what your advance rates and your cost of capital was going to be. And now it is just spraying all over the wall. Like people have dropped advance rates by 15 points. They've increased cost of capital by 200 points. And it's completely bank by bank. Like, we, and surprised us, in, you know, surprised us in some ways that we weren't expecting. Who have you seen sort of locally? And I, you know, it's obviously a nationwide show, but have we seen any local banks that are just literally out of the flipping business yet? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's been, the banks that went from, there was a lot of banks that were like on the edges, they would do lower loan to cost and they just went straight no. Now yeah. they're just out. So it's that, you know, which is driving that liquidity premium argument, right? Before yep. there was 10 bids and today there's, today it's literally maybe five and those five aren't very good. Yeah. And they're not excited about it. Either. Yeah. And they're not excited about it right. either. Yeah. So right. the market is not only more conservative, but it's also thinner. You know, there's, there's fewer yeses. And, you know, when you're really fighting really hard to find deals these days, you're willing to pay a little bit more for yes, for a confident yes. Sure. All right. So that's the show for today. That's the around the horn, uh, the, the news that's fit to hear and that you guys should know about. Hope you enjoyed it. All the show notes will be at realinvestorradio.com forward slash notes. I'm Craig Fuhr. Jack Bevere. Thank you, Craig. Hey, man. Thank you. We'll talk soon. See you guys again. Take care.